It's really my joy and privilege to be here again at Brandywine Valley. I, I love seeing friends who I've known for a long time, as well as new people. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, Brandywine was very important at the beginnings of my um, experience in developing ministry, but even as a young Christian, uh, I was assigned to the University of Delaware. It was my first assignment with Campus Crusade, and this was my church. And so I go way back, maybe farther back than even some of you, but uh, for those of you who have been here a long time, it's great to see you again. Yes. And I'm very pleased to be able to talk about this topic. I think it's one that is of concern to many people. I think it's confusing to many people. And as a result, sometimes I find that uh, even believers are saying, you know, this is so complex. I think we should just leave it to the scientists, and I'm sure they'll do the best thing in the end. Well, not necessarily true. So this is just a bit of an overview, hopefully to be helpful to you to learn how to think about these new things that are being developed, uh, new opportunities for us as a result of biotechnology that's being developed. So from conception to grave, why a Christian's view of life matters in this age of biotechnology. Is this volume okay? Can you hear me okay? I'm not screeching or anything. Okay, great. Thank you so much. So today, science, medicine, and biotechnology enables us to do things that we could never do before. We're able to cure more disease, have our genes analyzed, 23andMe, how many of you have spit into that little (laughs) container, Um, have children of our choice at any age. This picture is, to my knowledge, the oldest woman who's used in vitro fertilization at 72 years of age. I'm not sh- that was about three or four years ago. I'm not sure if she's still alive. Um, and to actually have more productive lives than, in many ways than we've ever had before. But as Christians, how should we think about these possibilities? You know, the Bible doesn't address these things specifically. There's nowhere in the Bible that you can read about in vitro fertilization or gene editing. So if it doesn't address it, does it give us information that will be helpful to us to learn how to think about them? Um, And as we're seeing what the advances are, what is the cost and how should we weigh that? So biotechnology... Um, really offers a whole array of new possibilities. And we're benefiting from some of them. We're being challenged by some of them, and often they're the same ones as these advances are developed. So what are some of the things that I'm talking about that biotechnology enables us to do? I'm just going to give a bit of an overview so you know what I'm talking about. Um, Reproductive technologies all kinds of things that we can do today that we couldn't do before. In vitro fertilization. In vitro literally means in glass. So it means that you're um, creating conception in a Petri dish and then taking that new embryo and implanting it back into a woman. But part of this process means that 
Uh, sperm and eggs are commodities. They're being uh, bought and sold. They're being frozen, shipped all over the world. Uh, what are the implications of that? Uh, surrogacy. That's where another woman carries your child. Uh, most of the time today with where the, well, it's actually become a market. And so there's usually payment involved. Uh, it's, it's created a whole new array of issues that we're dealing with from the gay community saying we have a right to have children just because my partner and I can't have one together doesn't mean that we shouldn't be able to have it, to the fact that once you've paid a woman to carry your child, if she ends up with multiple uh, pregnancies or multiple embryos developing, multiple fetuses, do you have the right to say to her that she needs to abort some of those? Um, So a whole array of new issues are coming up from that. Um, Designing our own children. So I don't know if any of you have seen the the movie called Gattaca. It's an old movie, but I just spoke to a group of interns on Capitol Hill about this after we watched the movie together. And what they're portraying is actually more plausible today than it was when the movie was made of designing your child. Now, you can't go in and say, this is exactly the child I want to have. But before... After conception takes place, after fertilization takes place in a Petri dish, they are able to go in and look at some of the traits and choose the ones that they want and usually destroying the embryos that are rejected. Um, Three parent embryos. I don't know if you've heard about this, if you follow any of this, but it is a new possibility Uh, In the U.K., it's been legalized. In the U.S., we're on the the line. Um, It's addressing an issue in some embryos where uh, there's a disease that comes as a result of problems with the mitochondria. Do you remember your high school biology? They're the energy powerhouses, and it creates um, problems with the child. And so... What they're doing is that they're taking the egg and the sperm, but they're using another woman's, some of her genetic material, and putting it all together so there's actually three people giving the genetic material for this new embryo. They don't know yet what the results of this will be. And then cloning. Uh, Since the days of Dolly the Sheep, uh, we've been hearing about cloning and the possibilities. So then in diagnosing and curing disease... Uh, since the early 2000s, when we really heard about the stem cell debates, remember under President Bush, there was a President's Council on Bioethics, and there were great discussions about, can we use embryonic stem cells? They're, they're giving us such hope and possibility. But often what's not explained is that in the process of getting the embryonic stem cells, embryos are created and destroyed. And so the more that we want, the more we're creating and destroying. So what are the ethics of that? Probably the issue or the possibility that's on the edge of what is possible now is called gene editing. Uh, 
Perhaps you've heard of the technique called CRISPR. Yes. And it's amazing. It has simplified this process so much so that I'm told by a friend who teaches uh, at Stanford that his students actually can buy things online that enable them to go and edit genes. Now, a lot of them are editing them for plants and animals, but there's a possibility for us to do it in a variety of ways that are helpful. Uh, There's gene editing that's being used for therapies. Um, A neighbor of mine, of Tim's and mine, on Capitol Hill, recently... I, we hadn't seen for a while, so I called him about something concerning the neighborhood. And he said, well, you don't know this, but I'm in ICU. I've been diagnosed with stage four lung cancer, had never been a smoker. And he said, I can't even get out of ICU because I'm requiring such a high level of oxygen. They have to keep me in here to get it. And he said, but there is a, a treatment using gene therapy that just a small percentage of lung cancer patients qualify for. And he said, I, if I qualify for it, it's had some amazing results. He was tested. He qualified. He started taking the medication. Three days later, he was out of ICU and back home again. And we have been following him. Uh, you know, as the other part of our ministry to our neighbors, we've had him and his partner, he's gay, over to dinner. We've talked about this, and we're praying not only for his health, but this may be the opening for us to go further in our conversations about um, eternal life with him. So then there's Creating Our Own Future, an actual Time magazine. Google has a project where they think that if they put enough money into it, that they can actually create immortality. Of course, it's the co-founders of Google and numerous billionaires that are at the forefront of wanting to use this. Uh, The gentleman that you see down in the lower right was born without the ability to see color, but he wears a prosthetic device that actually allows him to hear color and Apparently, he's able to perceive color even beyond the spectrum of what we're able to see, and he calls that device his iBorg. <laughs> um, and then transhumanism is a theory that is being developed, and people are subscribing to that believe that we can take our human experience and extend it through the use of machines and other kinds of technology that will enable us to, um, some think, go toward immortality or at least living a really long time. Interestingly, a person who's been in the news recently who became very interested and involved in this was Jeffrey Epstein, the billionaire who recently committed suicide because of the charges against him. But um, he had the money and he was planning to have his brain frozen. I kind of suspect that didn't happen at the end of the day. (laughs) So then this is the, the technique that I referred to called CRISPR, which stands for, it's an acronym, 
which I always have to read because even I can't remember it, clustered, regularly interspaced palindromic repeats. A woman by the name of Jennifer Doudna, perhaps you've heard her name, um, discovered it. It wasn't something that was developed, but she and then another French researcher sort of in tandem discovered this activity that is amazing where um, they're able to actually go in and literally cut out a gene or put a new gene in. So, of course, when it first was discovered, there was this great energy and expectation that we are going to be able to eliminate disease and even enhance our children and develop what we want. But, oh, what a surprise, it's not that simple. And what they're discovering already is that it's not, our genes don't work exactly the way we thought they did, that often they work in tandem with other genes. And, um, you know, I, I like to think of it as God keeps the upper hand in understanding these things. But in the lower right is a picture of a, a doctor from China who last fall attended a conference where they were talking about this very thing of gene editing. But he revealed that he had actually used this procedure in embryos and in what they call the germ cells. And the changes that he made uh, when you do it in an embryo, they're passed on. And there's been kind of a tacit agreement among scientists worldwide that that is not ethical to do. We don't know what the implications are, uh, and everybody has chosen not to do it. But secretively, probably funded by the Chinese government, he did it. And there were two little girls born to a couple, and he was addressing the issue of uh, them being HIV-resistant because there's so much... uh, That's such an unacceptable thing to be HIV positive in China. Well, not only did he, to his surprise, receive huge backlash from the scientific community, but he's really been penalized by the government after they probably supported it. Um, There was a period of time where they were saying he was executed, but that turned out not to be true. But... You know, it was plausible (laughs) at first glance. And now they're finding out that one of the the girls, the one girl of the twins, uh, this didn't work at all. The other one, it's not for sure what the result is going to be. And now they think that in the process that it's actually making them more vulnerable to some other things, possibly leukemia. So one of my friends who I mentioned who's a, who teaches at Stanford actually got to know this doctor when he did some postdoctoral work at Stanford. And he had some vigorous conversations with him about the ethics of, of doing this kind of thing, not knowing that this doctor was planning to actually do it. And my friend told me that, um, that Dr. Hay... Uh, came to him and he said, so you're telling me that something that is this big really has value, moral value. It was just not part of his thinking at all. So 
Does learning how to think about these things make a difference? Very much so. So when I started my ethics courses, one of the things that I learned early on is that science asks, what can we do? So researchers who are doing research um, just are pushing the envelope, saying, well, what can we do? And this is what has led to lots of um, experimentation and new discoveries and helps. But in this process, ethics asks, what should we do? And that's an important parameter that needs to accompany the discoveries that we're making. And, you know, technology in and of itself is agnostic in its ethics. It's just learning what is. And, and that's okay. That's what it is. But we need to bring in the thinking, the ethical thinking into it. And I'll just make one comment as well in this area of science ethics, there's another area of um, the legal aspect. And I find so often when I'm teaching the students, the med students, that when we're going through a case study that's really complicated and the ethical decision isn't clear at first glance, often the first question they will ask is, well, is this legal? And Legal is different than ethical. There's many things that we have legalized that are not ethical. And so we need to really separate that when we're thinking of what is ethical, that it's not the same as what is legal. And, you know, we have a a checkered past, don't we, in the legal field of things that have been legal, and some of them have been reversed as we have acknowledged more uh, some of them have not. So what are the issues at stake as we're asking these questions? Well, we often hear, well, when is the beginning of life, really? When is the end of life, really? Well, I have a friend who's a prominent bioethicist who likes to say, we actually know when the beginning of life is, and we know when the end of life is, What we need to ask is, what does it mean to be human? Because that's being redefined as we have new possibilities. Um, But it brings up the issue of whose life do we protect and whose life can be used instrumentally and ended for the sake of someone else. So from the destruction, creation and destruction of embryos, to decisions not to treat somebody with disabilities because they're going to cost the medical insurance more. Uh, These are important things for us to be thinking about. So human dignity is a second big framework question. Where does human dignity come from? Who makes that decision of whether we have dignity or not? Do we assign it to each other? Or does it come from God? If we assign it to each other, what, what's the criteria? I just learned that the Greek beginnings of the word criteria actually means sieve. <laughs> so how do you sort out what's important and what isn't? Or there are those today who are using the criteria of things like that you need to be sentient, you need to be conscious, 
Uh, you have to have a sense of the future, an ability to sense loss in order to have dignity. And so at the very beginnings of life, you don't have that. Toward the end of life, often you don't have that. And as somebody raised the question, what about when you're sleeping? Do you lose your human dignity? As opposed to what God says, which we'll talk about in a little while. Oh, sorry. Um, And then what value do our bodies have? I think increasingly we're in a culture that is separating our body from other parts of who they say we are. And there's a really good book. I brought three books to recommend if you're interested called Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy. Uh, She has written several books in the past with Chuck Colson. And this is her most recent book, really good where she says, if who we are, we attribute to, you know, the way we think, the, the things that we believe, and if we separate that from our body, we go into uh, a dualism. And she, she unpacks that really well, and I'm not going to get into it a lot, but it's, it is one of the questions that we need to think about. So how should we think as Christians? How should we respond? Um, For those of you who may have read some of Francis Schaeffer, he talked about how a worldview is like looking through glasses. And if you have the right prescription, you see things clearly. You see them for what they really are. But if you have the wrong glasses and even try to cross the street, your life might be in danger. And he takes that metaphor of glasses and said, that's what our worldview offers us. It gives us that explanation of the world, and it's, the, it's why it's important for us to develop a biblical worldview. I, I think of a worldview also, in addition to the glasses metaphor, as kind of a framework for thinking, so that I'm not just taking things and saying, well, in this situation, you should do this, or in that situation, I think you should do that, but it's much more of a way of thinking, uh, maybe providing that biblical sieve to be able to take things through to figure out uh, how to think, what's really important. So the, what is the right starting point? Well, it's, it's vital to have the right starting point because that determines where we end up. And I came across this quote from Voltaire, of all people, that I have found helpful. It asks, what is madness to have erroneous perceptions and to reason correctly from them? Now, I don't know about you, but I have found myself in discussion or argument with somebody that is so frustrating because they're actually being logical even though I know they're wrong. (laughs) And I've wrestled with how in the world can I have a a conversation with them? Well, this has helped me to understand that what I need to do with them is go back to what their starting point is because that's where we differ. Well, what's our starting point? Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The Imago Dei. And even taking that, when does the Imago Dei begin? 
Some say that an embryo uh, doesn't have value for, I've heard, the first seven days, which gives us freedom to do what we want to, just make sure you destroy it before the seventh day. But then even some of those people have said, "Mm, you know what, I think we can do more and learn more if we go 10 days. So it really is 10 days. And they, they wouldn't use the word Imago Dei probably, but they would talk about before the embryo has moral value. And then others are saying, no, it's not until it's inserted into the woman, into a woman's uterus. And others are saying, no, it's not until it implants. And then if you've ever heard of the infamous professor at Princeton who holds the chair in bioethics, Peter Singer, because of where where his starting point is, he believes that a child really doesn't become a person until, I've heard different things, a couple weeks after it's born, up to a couple of years. And he, he actually has said, I've seen this in print, that he thinks it's ethical to, for a parent to decide not to allow their child to live post-birth. He said it's not legal yet. So there's that legal, ethical uh, dichotomy. So that starting point is so important, just like these two paths. They're very close where they start, but they end up somewhere really different. And on the right, you see a couple of quotes, one by C.S. Lewis. I imagine in in this group there's a lot of C.S. Lewis readers where he said, the Christian and the materialist hold different beliefs about the universe. They can't both be right. So in other words, they're wearing different glasses. Uh, The one who is wrong will act in a way which which simply doesn't fit the real universe. And then take that, and this is a verse that my husband and I have been discussing a lot, especially as we live and work in Washington, D.C., from Romans 121. People knew God perfectly well, but when they didn't treat him like God, refusing to worship him, they trivialized themselves into silliness and confusion so that there was neither sense nor direction left in their lives. They pretended to know it it all, but were illiterate regarding life. There have been so many times that we have looked at each other after hearing something on the news or with something coming to our awareness where we have said to each other, that person is illiterate about life. So what is reasoning from a biblical basis or a biblical perspective? Um, You need to watch for the way things are presented, Uh, often the vocabulary or the utilitarian view is they'll talk about the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Well, that really sounds good at first glance, but at what cost? And so they would be applying this way of thinking perhaps to the use of embryos or even fetuses. I mean, we've seen that already uh, recently that they would say, but look at the good that can come from it. And often you will find that they start there so that you get engaged and go, yeah, you know, I have a cousin that has a disease that could be helped by that, or I know somebody who needs some kind of help. 
So that, that's just a, a little caution to be aware of. And then also the idea of um, that we being presented will provide a cure or ease suffering. So those are really important. And then human value based on ability to reason, be productive, or have a sense of the future. Being a person used to mean the same as being a human being. But I call it the parsing of the words as we have new interests. And now those mean two different things. So when you hear the idea of personhood, uh, just start asking a few more questions. And that's on the right. Ask the right questions. Things like, well, if we go forward with this, what is the cost? Are embryos created and destroyed in this process? For example, with CRISPR, the, the international uh, group of scientists are decrying this physician in China and what he did. But what you hear them say is, we don't think we should do this until it's safe, until we've proved it's safe. Well, when you dig a little bit and find out what they mean by that, they mean until we try this out on a ton of embryos and see where they go and let them go far enough until we know and then stop them. So, you know, just learning to ask that one more question, does this commodify or instrumentalize anyone's life or body? How should we think about the commodification of a woman, a woman's body, who is being used to carry a baby for someone else? And and I want to be careful here because I know a lot of people have used surrogates. But I think there's important questions to ask about that. Um, Is my body for sale? Can it be used for anyone? What are the, the implications of this? Uh, you know, can things like sperm and eggs be bought and sold, which they are? Um, so when does human personhood begin and end, and who decides? I've already mentioned that. And what are the presuppositions in this position? Uh, usually the person doesn't lay it out and say, these are my presuppositions, but there are some. So the more you're tuned into that, you can begin to ask questions that help reveal that. So as an example of somebody who has started from a different set of presuppositions, Peter Singer, who I've already mentioned, uh, has, has this, well, I, I got this quote from him. The life of a newborn is of less value than the life of a pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee. And he believes that. There's, it, he's on record being asked if, if there was a building on fire and you could go in and rescue a puppy or an infant, which would you rescue? And he said that there's scenarios where rescuing the puppy would be the right thing. So where, what is his starting point? Well, it's the value of humans. When do we, we would say, have the image of God in us? I like this quote. I go back to this often by Richard John Newhouse, where he said, it is our duty to strive to build a world in which the strong are just and power is tempered by mercy, in which the weak are nurtured and the marginal embraced, 
and to see to it that those at the entrance gates and those at the exit gates of life are protected by law and love. So I I think that's a good summary for thinking about these things. So we have a little bit of time, and I wanted to leave some time just for some questions and answers, and I see a hand right away. Well, we probably, what we think of in Germany is the word eugenics, where the Adolf Hitler had this idea of eliminating the genetic line of inferiors, whatever he deemed to be inferior for the sake of the superior race. Yes, that's very strong. In uh, It's eugenic thinking that is promoting the idea of designing our children Uh, There was just a statement that came out that, um, is it Iceland? I think it's Iceland was kind of bragging in the scientific journals that they have eliminated Down syndrome in their country. Well, what they've done is they've either aborted or uh, there's another process called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. They call it PGD. And it's when you uh, fertilize the eggs, so you have embryos in a Petri dish, and you can take out a cell when it's about two or three cells and see if it has Down syndrome. And if it does, then you eliminate it. And so, yes, that's eugenics. But I will comment, uh, if you read the history of eugenics, it's, uh, it's not a good picture. It actually started very strongly in the United States. And there were a number of presidents, Supreme Court justices, Uh, people of prominence, including, to my amazement, Helen Keller became a eugenicist at the end of her life, even though what she was promoting would have included her at an earlier stage. So, uh, you know, it's, it's very interesting. And again, what sounds good, maybe at first glance, the way it's presented, it's presented in a horrible way regarding Germany, But if you go back and read some literature of what the belief system was in the U.S., it actually uh, prepared for that idea to go to Germany. Yeah, Nate. Could you speak a little bit from, since you have have, uh, some government uh, background, could you speak a little bit, maybe some code words or things that we should be aware of that might come across Delaware legislation uh, that... You know, if something comes across that maybe as Christians we should be aware of, uh, are there code words or, or, or phrases that we say, mm, we, should, we should look more into that because it might be unethical? That's a great question. Um, I'm trying to think of what some of the issues might be. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what I'm doing. Um, CRISPR. You know, the gene editing is everybody is really excited about. And just as an aside, maybe even as an invitation, uh, one of the things that I do is I ask the Lord who he wants me to be praying for. I can't pray for everything and everyone, but is there somebody or something that you want me to pray for? So I have been praying. I have Jennifer Doudna's picture up on my prayer board. She's the one who developed... um, or who discovered CRISPR. And I, I have a friend who knows her and said that she's kind of agnostic ethically. 
She isn't positive. She isn't negative. She knows she's a little fearful because she knows that that's not well-developed in her thinking. But um, my friend at Stanford who had served on the President's Council on Bioethics under the Bush administration is really in the thick of all of this. And he's very well-informed, and he knows the people. Actually, he's the one who knows Jennifer Doudna personally. And he's been talking to me about his concerns of where things are going potentially legislatively. And his concern is that members of Congress don't know what the issues are. So when they're presented as with these issues of uh, moving some kind of legislation forward to enable certain things to happen, like even the three-parent embryo, <laughs> you know, I mean, that... I saw some of your faces when I said that, kind of going, what? what is that? And I think, number one, if there is something like that, you go, what is that? Um, it's worth asking. And with today, you can Google and find out pretty quickly at least what some of the issues are at stake. Um, and I think, in general, you know, just the things that, that I've been saying. Uh, so this, this gentleman, this, Dr. Hurlbut and I, he asked me, because I'm in D.C., and my husband worked in the Senate for so long, he asked me after the first of the year to set up some meetings with various members of Congress who are in leadership. And because of his credentials, I'm able to get in. <laughs> and uh, we've, we did this once before, a couple of years ago, to educate them about the ethical issues because they're not hearing them. Um, Emily, can you think of anything else? Emily, my friend Emily Davis, who's here with me from D.C., has worked in uh, government for a while. Does something else come to your mind in terms of language, Ms. Communicator? <laughs> well, thank you. And I worked uh, for Congress for about six years, and I currently work um, in the want to stand, stand up. Uh, office. Um, I would say to add to uh, Elaine's point that um, education on the front end is key. Because by the time that someone comes in and lobbies a legislator or a member of Congress, um, you know, they could be easily swayed or if they could have already been approached and, um, and already had that foundation of their thinking presented in a different way. So I think preempting um, the conversation and educating um, politicians and, and members of Congress and, and legislature is, is a key part. Because as different things pop up, you never know what the issue is going to be. So I think setting that foundation um, is, is a key point so that they can approach those issues uh, with the right foundation. Because you never know what kind of um, you know, issue is going to pop up that you never thought of before. So instead of playing whack-a-mole with the different you know, issues that are popping up, I think it's important to, to lay the foundation so they have a framework for approaching those issues whenever they are approached and, and lobbied on a particular subject. Mm, thank you. That's good. Yes, sir. In the orange shirt. Yes, I have a question about my job. This, a couple of ideas that came up here sounded like uh, ammunition for the culture war, ways that we can get better at hating each other. And, for example, suggesting that Capitalist only cares about money when some capitalists actually have hearts. Hmm. Similar to saying a scientist only cares about the next invention. What I'm curious about is have you seen where 
people are being taught how to have conversations that liberate common ground with scientists who are stopping to wonder, hey, is this, is this, a, is this a chance to take a time out and wonder? Or where people, lay people, that might have conversations at the dinner table might do a better job of exploring human dignity. <laughs> what I'm asking about is, have you seen something hopeful as opposed to ammunition that I can just watch TV? Oh, that's, that's a great question. That's quite astute. Um, I, one of the things I also do is leadership coaching. And, and one of the things that I've been learning through that, that I've been applying in these other areas, is what we call leading with questions. And I think so much of our culture wars are people lobbing, you know, ammunition at each other and saying what they think is right and what the other person says is wrong. But um, both, you know, my husband's job is in the area that includes climate change, environmental issues. I mean, really uh, areas that are creating quite a war. And so we talk about it with him, with these issues for me, that when you're talking to somebody who obviously is believing very differently than you, uh, what are some questions you can ask? And it's so interesting that one of the things that I've learned is that when you ask a person a question versus telling them something, something different happens in the brain, and they engage in a different way. And so whether it's doing leadership development where you're inviting them to engage in their own process or talking about something that you disagree on, uh, it's, it's a very effective way to engage in that conversation. But what I will say at the same time is that it's hard work. And Tim and I have had many conversations about, here's the situation. What question could I ask? And we actually labor over that. And often at our dinners where we are, uh, sometimes, often there are people who are like-minded. But even then, uh, we talk about how can we ask them good questions rather than, you know, just talking about ourselves or whatever. And so um, I know I'm not giving you a list of questions. I wish there was a list of questions. But I'd say step into it and, and start doing it. Um, even things such as, well, that's interesting. Now, wh- why do you think that? Or where did that thought come from? Or what, you know, some things like that that get the other person talking and then you can listen. And so it requires good listening skills as well. And then maybe taking it in a different direction. There's, there's a book that, um, it's online. It's called Leading with Questions. There's a, a book by a, a professor at George Washington University, but there's also a blog. And actually, if you would be interested, I'd be happy to send you the, um, you know, the link for that. It's, it's a great stimulation to think about how to ask questions. Yes, sir. Yes. And so as a bioethicist who has a theistic Christian worldview, how do you build bridges with bioethicists who don't? I mean, it used to be natural law was a concept that 
with, with the, connected to believers, whether they're Jewish, Christian, Muslim, whatever. Mm-hmm. Now natural law is actually being used by secularists. Um, it, 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 that, and they, they get there a different way. Mm-hmm. It's designed in the universe. They don't believe in God, but there are laws in nature and we can discover them mm-hmm. though they're agnostic or atheist or whatever. Mm-hmm. Are there things like that that you use to build bridges? Well, I would say I'm a learner, <laughs> and every time I learn something, I realize how much more I need to learn. And I just, I just finished reading a book on natural law, um, and it was brilliantly done. It was by people who have two authors that have a theistic worldview, and I listened to it on Audible, and I thought, I need to go back with my notebook and capture some of the questions that they asked. Um, you know, I was really tuning in to what is the reasoning that they're using in that. And so, yes, I think almost anything is being taken by people who have a different worldview and twisted. So it does require some thought of going back and how could I take that in a different way? And I had the opportunity to speak in Switzerland on this. And the gentleman who had invited me to speak, does leadership development for one of the big banks. And he came up to me afterwards, and he offered me the suggestion that in answering people, rather than telling them what I think or you know, what my reasoning is, to help them go to the end of their reasoning and see where it leads. And I found that really interesting, um, and it has challenged me to think about how can I do that more effectively rather than, again, going back and, and saying, well, this is my way of looking at it, um, le- again, leading with questions to, well, what's going to happen if you do that? Well, what about that? One more crisp question. I just wanted to say that um, in the whole dynamic of what you're speaking about, um, I think as Christians we need to also implement the fact that once we have this worldview of what conception and, and birth and life and through it all and end of life, that we also focus on the middle. Because I find that when people head down a path that's different than what we believe or someone's born with a disability or the transition in life that we don't agree with, we tend to disown them. We tend to say they're not valuable anymore. Your life isn't worth it because you're not living how I think you should live or how God thinks you should live. And I challenge us to, in this birth to life, conception of grave, whatever terminology you want to use, that we really focus on the middle as well and live our worldview on our Christian, how Jesus would in the midst of how other people are living and as you've mm-hmm. done with ministry in your home, embrace people that are different than us offer opportunities for those that are less fortunate and not allow ourselves to individually fall into stereotypes that disqualify Well said. Thank you very much. Elaine, is there, uh, are there other resources that you would want mm. to point people to for further study? Mm. Well, I do have these three books here. <laughs> I could have brought more, but I, I didn't want to bring too big of a bag. But... Um, they're good starting points, um, especially the one by Johnny Erickson, the one in the middle there, and uh, Nigel Cameron. It's been out for a while, but what they're writing about is still very relevant to where we are. 
And then another one by Nigel Cameron called The New Medicine. It's called The New Medicine. Oh, Johnny Erickson's. in a brave new world. Yeah. And then the one by Nancy Piercy that um, Love Thy Body. Uh, those, those are good, I would say, basic books in helping your thinking. Um, and there's, there are some websites. There's a group out of the Trinity International University in Deerfield, Illinois. It's called the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. And they, you can get onto their website and get what they send out. Uh, there's another one called the Center for Bioethics and Culture. Um, you know, that's a good source. And those would be from a Christian worldview also. So just as far as some starters. We have a leading researcher in the CRISPR and gene editing technology here in our own state, Christiana uh, Dr. Kemick. So he's somebody that uh, you can find out more. He's done a number of talks. Uh, I've heard him speak on this issue. And he does seem to be coming from a, a, a I don't know if it's a theistic view, but it's certainly a more conservative mm-hmm. view of mm-hmm. issues of life. That's great. So I was encouraged to hear that. Uh, so he's, he's somebody to kind of keep your eye on. Can you all thank... Thank you.